0: Hello and welcome to BoothCast. On BoothCast I interview uh, people from the industry, people in sport about business and their mindset. Today I've got on the show Tristan Boxford who is the CEO of the Association of Paddle Surf Professionals. He was an ex-windsurfer. He's been heavily involved in the SUP industry for a long time and it's really cool to have him on. So Tristan, thanks for having
1: us. Thanks for having me, Michael.
0: No worries. First off, we want to talk a little bit about your background and how you got involved, obviously, in windsurfing to start with. And then you moved into um, SUP. Can you tell us where you're from and, and how you got involved in sport
1: as a, as a young kid? Yeah, absolutely. I was actually born in France, um, but I'm British by nationality. We moved uh, back to England when I was about three or something. But uh, my family, both sides were obsessed with, with sailing and, and water. So it was always a, a big part of our lives. Uh, and as I grew up in my early years, um, I spent a lot of time sailing boats, dinghies and, and any kind of boats, and then uh, swimming. Uh, I really had a natural just love for, for being in the water. So suddenly uh, around nine or 10 years old, somewhere between uh, swimming and, and sailing was windsurfing. Uh, it was fast. It was, it was exciting. And I remember we went to a boat demo when I was about 10 or so. Uh, and it was howling windy. They wouldn't let any boats go out and these windsurfers were flying up and down. I was like, that's the coolest thing I've ever seen. Um, I want to be doing that. Uh, and I did it. So got into windsurfing really, really uh, heavily. My brother as well, both of us were, were super into it. Um, and it kind of turned into a career for me pretty quickly. I'm, I'm kind of a, a person, once I get into something, I'm, I'm head down and, and drive. And, and that's all I wanted to do. I literally would eat, breathe, and and Everything windsurfing Uh, and growing up in London, it wasn't obvious because the part of windsurfing that I loved uh, so much was was waves. Um, So I used to have to catch trains, uh, planes, every kind of uh, uh, vehicular transport until I could drive uh, (laughs) that would get me to the water and get me on on the water. So, um, you know, but that led to a sort of 15 year career in in windsurfing uh, um, that took me all over the world. Um, I got really involved in media projects. Uh, I followed the world tour. I got British and European titles. Um, And then on the world tour, I had some success here and there. got to about, we got a fifth place finishes here and there. Um, And uh, it was an incredible time. Met a lot of friends, uh, explored the world, fell in love with my sport even more. Um, And just, uh, yeah, Yeah. that's where it is.
0: So when you're windsurfing, can you explain to somebody like me who has not really a lot of knowledge about windsurfing, what you were competing in? So is it, do you compete in like racing or is it like wind win in the like do you catch waves or how does it actually work?
1: Well, like stand up paddling, there's, there's a couple of disciplines in windsurfing. Uh, you know, we have racing and surfing in, in stand up paddling and it's the same for, for windsurfing. Uh, in the early days of windsurfing when I first got into it, um, I obviously used to do some racing, uh, but it never really jived with me as much as, as, as wave sailing, which is, is ext- essentially a, an extension of surfing. You're going. Mark Ten, uh you're going super fast. Uh and you you're riding boards that are very similar to surfboards and, and you're riding waves and you have an aerial aspect to it, obviously, because you can with, with the wind power you can you can fly. Um so it's pretty exciting. And on the way in you're you're surfing like regular surfing, and on the way out you're jumping. So all kinds of aerial maneuvers from forward loops, backward loops, uh all the different variations you can do in the air. So it's a really exciting side of windsurfing. Um, but racing as well is is great. Um being a competitive person, you know, I did love both, but I really focused in my career on, on wave sailing.
0: And so with the wave sailing, where did you practice that? Because growing up in London, you don't have a lot of waves. So where did you go to actually
1: to do that from London? You know, I uh, fortunately had some friends uh, or my father's fa- kind of family friends who lived near the, near the beach in, on the south coast of England. So I used to keep my gear in the garage. I used to, uh, after school, fortunately, my school accepted the fact that uh, I had an obsession. And um, I did a lot of weird like PR stunts and stuff like that to get exposure so I could get sponsorship and be able to go go windsurfing when I was young uh, so they accepted the fact that that was something that I did and they gave me leeway to to kind of finish school early each day to go down to the to the ocean but it was kind of a mission it was sort of eight hours like I mean eight miles of cycling uh, two hours of train to go windsurfing and then eight miles cycling and two hours of train back so it was definitely uh, a dedication six hours of traveling a day.
0: Yeah, it's massive commitment. So it must have been something you love. And obviously, you ended up chasing it for 15 years. Um, so what, what, like, what about um, when you're talking about uh, branding, essentially, or doing the media commitments and that sort of thing? Was that something you were heavily interested in as a young sailor as well, or a young windsurfer?
1: Yeah, you know, I was really fortunate. I, I always loved writing. Uh, I, I'm definitely an art student. Uh, languages and music was kind of my, what I focused on. And it's actually, I ended up going to university as well and did languages and business. Um, so I was able to write uh, more easily, I would say, than other things. Uh, and it really helped me in my career because as a wave sailor, we had probably you know, anywhere between four and six events a year, uh, which isn't, you know, it doesn't fill your whole year, obviously. Uh, and the rest of the time, I was, I was doing research and development for sponsors. I was uh, doing a lot of travel writing and stories. Uh, and I used to write for everyone from the kind of uh, windsurfing press to GQ to um, men's health to uh, all the different kind of lifestyle magazines. Uh, and then I got into the, kind of the TV side of it. We did stuff with MTV Europe. I did stuff with Transworld Sport. Um, so I kind of got a real understanding of how media works. Uh, and it was something I really enjoyed doing. And it was a great compliment to, to being an athlete.
0: So did that help you get in? So when did you see stand-up paddling for the first time? And how did you start? Obviously, you were doing a lot of writing already. You're doing a little bit of a few different media projects. Is that sort of something that kickstarted you into once you've seen stand-up paddling? And, and when was that?
1: Um, you know, it's funny. It, it started a while before that. I mean, I, I, the first major project I did, uh, I was concerned with the way windsurfing was going. It was losing traction. It was getting smaller. Uh, I wanted to kind of bring it to a more mainstream audience. Uh, and I created a pilot for a reality TV project for, for Initially starting in windsurfing, but the idea was to spread to all the different ocean sports Um, because one of the things I've always felt is that kind of ocean sports are a family of sports and I always hated when they got linked with motocross and and skateboarding and kind of urban sports because there's no connection. Uh, And I think increasingly in this world people start to see the connection of of sports that really kind of are out there and outdoors uh, and in the environment. So you know that was the focus of what I wanted to do Created a pilot uh actually had advanced talks with MTV and a couple different networks of doing it but there'd been so many kind of surfing flops over those years that it was it was a tough sell uh and while I was doing that I kind of had this inspiration to do a broader event which was something called the Ocean Games which I ended up doing in 2007 we did it for NBC uh and Jeep was a major partner of the of the event uh and the sport brought together all the different ocean sports into one event and it was really a first uh, surfing event for stand-up paddling. Funnily enough, because we had stand-up paddling, shortboard, longboard, uh, windsurf, kite. Um, we had surf canoe, tandem surfing. It was like every single way you could possibly ride a wave uh, was incorporated in the event. And we had legends like Bonga Perkins and Robbie Nash and Dave Kalama and all these kind of people involved in it. Um, so it was it was super cool event. Unfortunately, the uh, economic crisis hit pretty pretty shortly after that in two thousand eight. So I kind of went back to the, not to the drawing board, just kind of was thinking about, you know, what was the next step? And as that was starting to happen, I got really into stand-up paddling. I was uh, surfing all the time anyway, uh, surfing much more than windsurfing at that stage. Uh, And then, you know, because I'm a a bigger guy and already knew how to ride with something in your hands and use it to your advantage, (laughs) um, stand-up paddling suddenly kind of really fit for me. uh, And I liked the diversity. I've always loved big, bigger surf. So, you know, going out into bigger surf conditions, you know, even when guys were tow surfing and stuff, I could get into waves a lot easier than guys paddling out. Um, and then in small waves, you'd have such a great time because, you know, you're not graveling on a shortboard when it's one to two feet. Um, so, I, this incredible diversity kind of really struck me. Uh, and I like the fact that it drew on people with kind of multi skills from all the different sports. You know, you sometimes have somebody who's a really great shortboarder, but you can't really do something else. Whereas it was bringing in this breed of athletes that, you know, they're like the Kiahis, the Kais, the Zanes, the, these guys who had multiple different ways of, of riding and they brought it all into this one new sport that had so much potential. Um, so that's how, that's how it all came about. So in, in 2009, I kind of presented to the uncles in Hawaii the idea of, well, how about we, uh, we do a world tour for this? You know, and initially we put a, uh, an, a concept schedule of uh, Puerto Escondido, uh, Chopo and Sunset. Uh, so that was our first kind of surfing out, output uh, of what we wanted to do. Uh, in the end, we did a, um, a partnership with um, Tahiti Tourism and Air Tahiti Nui uh, and actually actually, that you know quite well. Um, yeah. <laughs> we produced a uh, kind of exhibition event in, in Tahiti for the first year. Uh, we did it with Moorings Yachts, and we cruised around mm-hmm. the islands, and we, uh, we had uh, Chuck Patterson at Kalama. Um, Mama'la. Uh, it was a lot of Hawaiians, a lot of Tahitians. We had uh, Arsene Harajoi. We had, you know, all the all the crew at that stage. It was kind of the older crew, Kaino Uh and we did this kind of uh, representation of this is what stand up paddling is. Because at that point, you know, pretty much no one was really that aware of stand up paddling outside of a core market, uh, and. Anybody who was in the in core cool market even thought it was this long cumbersome board that no one knew what to do with where suddenly these guys were getting barreled at Chilpo and this was a whole different uh, deal. So that's really what we aimed to do and it worked. It uh, led to the launch of the full world tour in 2010 and we started with, you know, initially the concept with three events ended up being five events because we got approached by Brazil, we got approached by the big island. Uh, the mayor of the big island was a surfer and he was like, man, I want to finish and crown the world champions here. So And a gentleman called Kailani come onto the scene. I I actually proposed him for a wild card. All the, all the older guys were like, he needs to earn his place. He shouldn't get a wild card. And I kind of said, I think he should probably get a wild card. And uh, funnily enough, he won that title and continued on to obviously where he is now. So. (laughs)
0: Yeah. So, so you start the stand up world series in 2009 or
1: 2010? Exhibition event in 2009, uh, and then we had a full world. 2010 so the first year we crowned a world title was 2010 Um, and then end of 2011 was when we launched uh, the world series so we did an exhibition event again in in turtle bay actually on the north shore so we did it started with kind of more surf racing i've always felt like you know sport stand-up paddling as it was starting to evolve was such a cool sport because it had such participation potential Um, but i wanted to make sure we kept that uh, excitement and buzz around it so all the formats i was trying to create was stuff that I felt people would want to watch and would catch people's attention rather than just having an endurance race where they disappear for a couple hours and come back. Um, so, you know, we started it in that kind of vein with this, it, with this event at Turtle Bay, which is one of the most exciting venues because it's, it's, it just is. I mean, you've got a point break, everybody's sitting there having a beer on the cliff and the guy's passing right underneath you. You got five guys on a wave battling for position. It's, it's a super exciting venue for, for creating kind of an arena event. Uh, and that led to the launch of the World Series in, in 2012 for racing.
0: Yeah. So you had basically the the surfing for two years and then yeah. you started the racing. So the racing has been going for now seven years and obviously eight years if you were racing this year, hopefully you are racing at the end of the year. But who was winning those first
1: stand up World Series? Like who won the first two? It was Kai. Kai and Connor had this like death battle that started, uh, you know, they've always been competitors. I've known those kids since they were sort of seven years old or something. And, uh, there was always this just inbuilt competitiveness on the one side from Kai, who's more the loner, like driven head down. And then there's the more sociable Connor and Zane and that group. And it was just like this, you know, they really butted heads on the race course uh, and off the race course. I mean, they're definitely friends, but they had those personalities that wanted to beat each other at any cost. Um, you know, I'm thinking back to Patagonia in 2012. We did that race up in at altitude in, in uh, Lake Grey. And literally i it came down to like a tiebreaker in this in this uh kind of lake area where we were down actually down from the glaciers, and Connor, for the first time, cracked and was like, "You know what? like let's just agree to the tie, and Kai was the one, no, we're going to you know we're going to finish this here." And they went on and did it, and what, I can't remember which of them was like literally spitting blood when they came in, but one of them was spitting blood, and Connor won, so it was kind of one of those funny uh, moments in sport where Connor was going to be you know what, let's just, let's, you know, let's just tie this one. And Kai yeah. was down yeah. and then Connor ended up winning, which was kind of a, it was an interesting one.
0: Yeah. Cause they always, they had such a fierce rivalry. Like my first um, impression of Connor and Kai's rivalry was actually at PPG in 2014, Salt Creek. And they came in on that wave and one I don't know who dove off. Someone fell off and someone grabbed someone's handle and there was a big blow up after the race. And it just, it obviously had just been going forever and that was just my first impression. I was just like, wow, these guys are so full on. They just like, really want to win. They really want to just give everything. And what was the reason that they didn't, that you weren't going to run that event?
1: Which one, the ppg
0: no, The one how it was going to be a, um, a tie break. I mean, like kind of wanted to just go, yep, yeah, no, we'll, go, we'll, draw, we'll draw this World Series. And then um, Kyle was like, no, no, we're going to go and race. What, what,
1: you, what was that? that was just for the event title. So it wasn't even like, it didn't really have oh. title implication. Yeah, yeah. They were literally going, like, do we share, point, like, do we share first place or sec, you know, it share the points uh, or do we you know, finish this? And Kai was like, no, we're finishing this here. So, you know, he was feeling confident he was going to take it and Connor was just beat down. I think he was the one that was spitting bud but then when it came to the, uh, it came to the battle, it was pretty impressive. Yeah, so I think my, my headphones just died
0: but we can keep going because I just switched over to this one. Um, so, you have that first World Series in 2013, oh, sorry, 2012, and then
1: 2013, you just keep going along? Yeah, basically, what happened was it was an interesting time in the sport and it was an interesting learning lesson for me. You know, we built this from the ground up, so we didn't get any investment capital to start uh, growing this, this business, to start growing a kind of organization for the sport. Uh, we did it with grit, uh, determination and, and, and hard work. I mean, that was the only way we were going to get it done. And we built those first few years by getting sponsorship, by getting host countries to, to participate. Um, and then uh, what happened when we launched the World Series was that suddenly everybody realized, and races were popping up all over the world as, as well, was that You know, it's easy to run a race compared to a surf event. You don't need judges. You don't need all the different things that you need for a surf event. Uh, and you can do it in a weekend and, you know, relatively, it's, it's very cheap to do. Um, so what we found was, um, and this was one of the, you know, big, big learning lessons for us was we had interest from all over the world. We had events, I think in 2013 or 14, we had like 13 events across um, six continents. And it, it, you know, it was, I was stretched between wanting to have a quality control where we're there and we're creating something that's meaningful, um, from just being a sanctioning saying, yeah, you can have our name and, and you run the event. Um, and I wasn't comfortable with the latter. Like I felt like if we're gonna grow a property, we need to have some kind of control over it. Um, so we tried to keep up and, and grow with it, um, but it was just really challenging. And we started like, just, you know, literally it was on the hamster wheel, just trying to keep, <laughs> keep it all going and keep everything in place um, and be everywhere and be everything, uh, you know, and, and it's, it's challenging.
0: So when you first started the, the tour, who were you starting? Was it, I know Christian had a lot to do with the tour as well, but was it your branch out or his branch or did you do it together and then did you have
1: different members of your team as you went along? Because obviously you couldn't do it all by um, like it was myself and my wife who started it actually so you know it was definitely a family affair christian uh i've been working with for several years i met uh, we always laugh he's my second my other wife because uh we met i met my wife two weeks after i met christian (laughs) so uh you know we started working on the ocean games project back in 2007 uh and then um you know, my wife and I got married actually 2010, just before the Big Island finals in the first year of the tour. Um, so it was very much a family affair. And, and Christian, uh, my wife and I have a lot of uh, pretty funny stories. Actually, if you sat down, you could probably write 10 books. Actually, my wife probably will because she's an incredible writer. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, that's basically how it started. Uh, and actually, I had one of my really close friends from college. Uh, he was a banker. And he had got out of banking, you know, especially around the you know the crisis that happened in 2008. And he was having somewhat of a sabbatical, and he wanted to get involved, and he came and helped. And, and cruised with me, and he was one of my best mates. So he helped in the in the first couple of years or first year, uh, you know, and got to cruise the world and and explore this kind of uh, lifestyle for a bit. Um, but other than that, it was just yeah, it was basically myself and my wife, and then and Christian has been there since the beginning. Uh, and we just we just charged forward, and we were really fortunate that. You know, we, we started to build a really cool team of contractors um, that are still with us today. Um, you know, I think we, we look back on it as that one of our crowning achievements um, is, is the fact that everybody we kind of started working with, we're still working with. I think there's two people since the beginning that um, we're not working with anymore that we, you know, uh, from, from the very beginning, which is amazing.
0: So what was your vision going into this with your wife initially? What did you want to achieve with this World Series? and obviously start with the surfing and you get racing in, but what was like your vision statement? Like what did you want to achieve overall?
1: Um, I think, you know, when we first started, we wanted to create uh, a legitimate um, professional platform for the sport. That was number one. Number two, you know, I've always been very media focused because I feel like uh, for longevity uh, for the sport and for its, its ongoing success, you need to have a product that, you can, that can transcend a local market. Uh, so you can't just run a race and expect that to be financially viable. Uh, and at the end of the day, to, to grow a sport um, requires so many different things for it to happen. Um, you can keep a sport at grassroots level and run various events and it's great um, around the world. But if, if you don't connect them in, in a broader sense and create an international product that is sellable at an international level, then the sport, it's hard for the sport to get to the point where you see road biking, where you see triathlon, Ironman, all these different sports. Uh, and then obviously surfing and, uh, as well um, so you know I think that was the overall objective was to create a platform that works and create a media product that's that's viable and that tells a great story uh, and that is based on characters in the sport you know and I think we were lucky in the early days a lot of the stories told themselves without us having to do anything you know like you said about the Connor Kai story uh, we had many of them in surfing we had you know and now there's all, all kinds of news stories you know like yourself coming on the scene you got Casper you got all these characters that uh, coming onto the sport from different backgrounds with different stories. And I think, you know, for me as a storyteller, that's the most exciting thing because the 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 ongoing thread is the competition and who wins the world title. But the storytelling potential around that is something that, you know, we're only just scratching the surface of. And, and as we grow over the next couple of years, it's something we're definitely focusing a lot more on.
0: Yeah. So it's, it, I think a lot of people forget when you're talking about sport, that it is a lot about the story. It's a lot about the characters in the sport. It is a lot about – just trying to showcase what all these people can do on a professionally sporting level, but actually being able to sell it is probably the hardest part of like actually the whole product. How have you found um, the ways that you've learned how to sell um, sup or sell any other media project to a financial institution or getting financial backers like how hard has that been and, and how successful have you been with it?
1: You know, I think anybody who's ever been in the sponsorship world, uh, and all you guys know because you go out there trying to sell sponsorship for yourselves, it's it's a really challenging thing to do. You know, because the end of the day, sponsorship is the last decision that, that companies make, uh, and it's the first one they'll get rid of when it comes to you know tightening the the drawstrings. So, you know, it's it's always a challenging thing, sponsorship, uh, and the sports market is such a ever-changing market as well. I mean, you know, thinking back to when I was an athlete, which is a long time ago now, but it's not relatively it's not that long ago. My career path that I had wouldn't be possible today. I mean I guess it would be because I'd be doing stuff through social media, I'd be doing various bits and pieces, but I built a lot of my career through a lot of the press distribution that I had and how I leveraged that to keep my sponsors engaged and, and into what I was doing. So, you know, I think uh in terms of how in terms of how we sell to sponsors, I think the uniqueness of the product is really impressive. Um, stand up paddling is a hybrid sport uh, that brings together the attractiveness and allure of, of the surfing lifestyle, which, you know, everybody loves the world over, but it avoids the exclusiveness and niche nature of surfing. You know, at the end of the day, surfing has a huge barrier to entry. Um, it's the cool guys club, whereas stand up paddling has this all access appeal, but it still has this lifestyle appeal of surfing. So it's kind of the best of both worlds, in, in my opinion, as you as you take it to market. Uh, and then you have the ability to be able to take it to markets that that real brands care about. And that was our shift towards the City Paddle Festivals in 2018, is we didn't want to force people to come to us. We wanted to bring the sport to them. Um, you know, And I think that was the shift for us because at the end of the day, you end up kind of boxing yourself into a traditional surf event when you expect all the world to come to a small beach destination you're going to get a core cool market, that's for sure. And that's great. But in order of growing for the future, we wanted to get to a market that was much more expansive. Uh, and by taking it to London, New York, Paris, we started to see the real potential to say, look, we're going to bring surfing to the city. We're going to bring these dynamic characters, this way of life, this thing that's pretty foreign to these kind of places, but access is huge market. And that's where I think the magic is. And that's where I think the potential is. And not that coastal venues can't offer that as well, um, but just the concept of, of how you approach people, you know, and even launching our inflatable pool, it came about because we wanted to have a way that people could have that instant satisfaction of trying the sport the first time and not have an intimidating, daunting experience. You know, I used to cringe when I was a windsurfer and people would say, I tried windsurfing, I went out, I couldn't turn around, somebody had to come pick me up and you know, that's a shitty experience and no one's ever gonna do it again. You know, whereas stand up paddling, if you get on and, you know, uh, waist high water and you paddle down, you instantly do it, you feel like a champ. Uh, and, and uh, you know, and that, I think, is the beauty of the sport. Um, and then if you can turn around and see, you know, Michael Booth and Conor Baxter dueling it out in a race uh, right in front of you, um, it kind of brings the magic of all that together where, you know, you'd never have a Formula One race where you yourself can drive on the same day. Yeah. And, and that's where I th-
0: yeah, no, it's really cool to hear your passion. And obviously you've been doing this for 10 years now, so you've sort of, you're in it for the long haul. There's no sort of stopping you. I know you've had your, your different trials and tribulations with the whole concept. Um, what do you think, what would you say have been like your hardest challenges in trying to get this tour out to the general public and SUP um, community and trying to get everybody to rally around it? Like what has been your biggest challenge or your few of your biggest challenges?
1: Uh, You know, I think uh, like with anything, it's like you either put yourself out there and and push forward or you don't. There's no middle ground. There's no like just trying it and see what happens. Um, You know, and I think uh, we've always let our actions do the talking. We we push as hard as we can. Sometimes it's it, you know, especially over the years of undercapitalization. So when we didn't have, um, you know, a backing of funds, if a sponsor doesn't pay, there's no money in our account. You know, there's just stuff that just is the fundamental reality of it. Unless you have a capital reserve from investment or something that, that is the reality of it. And, you know, and that's why, you know, my, myself, my wife made a lot of personal sacrifices, uh, to keep the tour going, to make sure that, you know, we continue to deliver. And, um, you know, I think that the most challenging thing is, you know, payment people, when they go and compete, you go to compete, you do your race and you walk away and you, you expect everything right then. And that's a reality of it. You expect to be paid. You expect this to be done. And and, and that is as it should be, for sure. Um, as an organizer, you know, and as a tour organizer, because we own and manage all our events, um, we're involved in the back end of it where, you know, payments come in late. Payments come in sometimes six months late. Um, and those things can really create havoc with cash flow and ability to be able to to do things according to a timely yeah, you know, manner. You know, I mean, it's just it's just the financial reality of it. And anybody who owns a business or runs a business will be able to attest to that. And in the events business, unfortunately, it's even harder, um, just because cash flows are tougher, and and everything is due right then when the event. Literally, the moment people turn the lights off at the end of the event, it's like the swarm comes, you know, and everything is happening from contractors to service providers to everything. And and that's the nature of the business. And and you know, that's what we've done over the last few years is to try, try to really conquer, you know, kind of solidify that with, with the capital backing so that we can cover those difficult times, we can make it through the the challenges that those cash flows represent, and so that we can deliver a really uh, successful product to, to everybody.
0: So out of interest, and I'm not sure if you want to answer this or not, but how much would it cost to run an event in New York, for example, because I, I can't imagine it's cheap, like you've got obviously everybody getting there. You've got two different locations. We are obviously at the Long Beach and then we're in the city. You've got obviously all the permits that you've got to get from the city. Um, and all sorts of costs associated with that. Like it must cost a lot to get this on. And I think as an athlete, we're really lucky to be able to race there. Like I know for me, like going to be able to paddle around the Statue of Liberty and actually paddle in New York and actually have an event in the centre of Manhattan was just sort of mind-blowing. I was like, I have to go, I have to be there. Like, how cool is that? I may never get to do that again. So it must cost a lot of money to get these events off the ground.
1: No, definitely, you know, there is the hard cost of, of producing the events. Uh, you know, when you go to big city, there's kind of like the city, city tax um, <laughs> from, you know, police to fire to, you know, every different department. You know, for example, between heavy water and, and uh, New York, I think we, we deal with about Seven or eight different government agencies. You're dealing with harbor traffic in New York, uh, and you know, quite frankly, the harbor guys don't want you there um, because they they run their you know millions of dollars worth of business daily th- across that river. And then there's a bunch of paddlers you want to paddle across and round the Statue of Liberty, and and that doesn't fit into their kind of schedule of like why are these idiots on the river that you know, and they campaign on a daily basis to have no uh, unpowered craft on the river, so yeah. they don't want leisure people. So that's the fight that you face uh, when you present, you know, like we presented to the city, I had to have eight governmental meetings with the mayor's office with all these different people. We sold it to the mayor's office first because I knew at the end of the day, you know, the decision lies with these guys. If they push it through, these other guys have to comply providing that you deliver on what you're saying. So I fortunately got the mayor really excited about it. Um, he actually wanted to come down to, to paddle uh, the first year and in the end he didn't make it down. Um, but um, but yeah, so we got them excited about it, which led to all the meetings that followed. We, we had boat meetings in for the river. We had uh, security meetings with the police force, the fire department, you know, but uh, it's a long process and it's a painful process sometimes. But once you get through it and you get the faith of those agencies, it, it, everything rolls a lot smoother. Like in London, you know, we have huge support from, from the, uh, the river authorities there. Um, and same goes for New York and, and in Paris the same. I mean, you know, our partners there have been doing it for, for nine years as well or 10 years actually. Um, so, you know, it's, it's good once you get generate that faith, but it does take a lot. And in terms of budget, um, it's, it's pretty expensive. I mean, it's not just putting a couple of flags on the beach and running an event for sure.
0: Yeah, it must cost the and So I know paddling on the Thames as well, like it's sort of an unreal experience. I know I've won the Thames race, um, actually two years in a row, which is pretty cool. You probably don't, I probably don't take in the sights as much as I do, but it's something that I'll take with me for, the rest of my life. It was actually one of the hard things for me because I didn't, I didn't actually win a race in New York at any point. So that was always hard for me to like deal with. But winning, winning on the Thames and winning in Paris two years in a row has been a really cool experience for me. And the iconic winners, they're, they're taking the paddling sort of to the cities and to where the people you get know, those iconic shots. Um, how important is that to be able to push the stand-up paddling sport into the global media and
1: the, the general public? I think there's a couple of reasons you go to those big cities. Number one, as I said, you, you hit mass populace, you hit uh, markets that that sponsors are really interested in. Um, But you also look at it from a publicity perspective perspective, that a picture of you paddling um, with just water behind you is less likely to get published than a picture of you paddling with the Eiffel Tower behind you. I mean, you know, that's just (laughs) that, you know, those iconic shots create newsworthy images that people want to run. Uh, And, you know, having been a windsurfer in a, a kind of shameless self-promoter back when I was younger to, you know, to make my living and, and live the lifestyle I wanted to live. You know, I did, I, I windsurfed in front of the house of parliament. I did it in front of the uh, millennium dome. I did, you know, every stunt imaginable on the river Thames, because at the end of the day, that one shot captures people's imagination. Uh, you know, and I got a big spread in the daily uh, in the daily mail back when I was a kid doing a forward loop in front of the Hammersmith bridge, you know, that picture of somebody upside down in front of Hammersmith bridge just doesn't, you don't, it's stuff that you, you, it doesn't matter where else you are in the world, it could be a, a hundred foot jump in this craziest place, but nobody will run it. But you've got something like that behind it, people will run it, and that, again, creates exposure for the sport, which is, which is important.
0: Yeah, and you're sort of constantly pushing that exposure and pushing that outreach to more sponsors and trying to get more sponsors involved. Um, when, you're, when you've been running the series, so we spoke to up to about 2012, 2013, but From 2013 up to 2018, when you started the app, you were still the stand-up World Series. Um, How how did that track for you
1: guys, and what sort of locations were you racing in before you went to this parallel festivals model? You know, we literally raced in every kind of ocean condition you could possibly imagine. We did stuff from the you know the Channel Crossings from uh, Natandola down to Namotu in Fiji, so big open ocean conditions, more like the Molokai to Oahu than anything else, um, to like I said, up in Patagonia. Um, in in the lakes we did it in Hamburg and in in the middle of the city we uh, we did it in ocean locations all over the place so really anywhere you can imagine running a race we did it Um, you know and there's there's an endless uh, supply of cool locations around the world you can do it Um, you end up honing in on what makes the most sense for the sport what makes the most sense for the tour and the growth of the tour and what is a good balance uh, of conditions that can provide a legitimate pathway to a title. And that's, that's really for me, what I've, you know, as we went to the city route, I took this, this year we kind of reflected a little bit and we said, listen, we need to make sure that each of the major components of, of, of racing are represented here. Um, or at least the key components and downwind without doubt is a, uh, you know, a popular component for, for racing as a whole. It's probably the, it's kind of like the dream race for most people to do a downwinder as opposed to just, you know, grilling it out uh, on flat water. Um, so we wanted to have that involved, which is why we incorporated Maui, Maui this year. Unfortunately, obviously, this this year's uh, proved challenging. But um, but yeah, that's what we look at when we look at those locations. We went everywhere, and we kind of brought it back to being very strategic with where we go and what we do.
0: Yeah, no, it's just interesting how it's all evolved, and and you've obviously had those like sort of iconic locations, those beautiful pictures in different places. Then you've moved to the city. Um, what did you find was the most challenging component? Were you constantly running all those different events when you were going to all those different locations as well? Because I know you're doing that now, you run all your events yourself. What were the challenges between when you were running sort of, like another, another event was running with the APP logo as its like sort of um, elite category. How How is that challenging compared to running your own events? Because running your own events must be more work and like because you're constantly running it from putting the flags in the beach to actually getting the permits and, and doing the negotiations with all the safety and all the media. How, how hard was that sort of transition from helping with the um, organizers who already had events to moving into running basically every event yourself?
1: Um, well, a lot of the events we started our own anyway. So we were doing that and we kind of realized that, you know, as we were stretching ourselves too far, trying to manage every single aspect of the event. Uh, in all these different locations, we were just killing ourselves, you know. And, and because my background is quite broad in terms of experience, I have a lot of experience in ocean safety. I have a lot of experience in race management. I have a lot of experience in media. So I was just kind of stretched over all these different areas. Uh, they was literally just driving us into the ground. We just never had a moment, um, you know, didn't have enough time to commercialize it and take it to market. Didn't have enough time to do anything. Uh, and that's where in 2017 we had to kind of pull in the reins a little bit and say, "Whoa." whoa. <laughs> second we've got to like stop this train for a second so that we can take a breath and and make a proper step forward and and that's what really led to us you know obviously we we tried for a couple of years to raise some money but because i was running so much and doing so much it was just impossible um so you know end of 2016 going into 2017 we started that process uh and we finally got to the end of it by the end of 2017 and we were able to rebrand and launch in 2018 with this kind of new look app world tour we felt like um, bringing everything under one banner was important uh, so that people outside of the sport and they come in and there's just a one stop, you know, this is the sport. It represents all aspects of the sport. Uh, and this is, you know, this is the professional platform.
0: Yeah. Cause is it is, I think has basically become the professional platform of the sport and it's like the elite uh, of the elite who go and there's 24 guys and I think 16 girls or 24 girls as well. And you're constantly racing out the best of the best. How is that? How do you sort of, um sell that to the general sub community because that must be hard if they can't necessarily come to the events i know you have with Palace, you started to have the open open events as well um, but how important was bringing the general public back
1: to those events it's hugely important you know i mean like i said over the years that you're you're trying to build something you end up you realize that you have to focus on one part of it to be able to push it forward And for us, cementing that top professional platform was important for the overall image of the sport. Um, If you look towards other sports like PGA to, you know, for golf and all these other kind of organizations, you have to have that top piece to be able to grow everything else out. Um, You know, definitely over the years that we were overstretched, it was hard to develop uh, the mass participation side and the community side as much as the pro side so we just focus on what we could uh, developing developing our media product and developing this kind of top elite platform but that's by no means uh, the full uh, scope of what we what we are today um i mean you know in in japan how many people are racing on the river how many people are in paris you know new york we were limited because the river there is just so challenging to paddle on, and, and there's no way we could get a mass participation race on the Hudson because we'd get shot by about 20 different people. <laughs> um, <laughs> really you know in London that year.
0: <laughs> what well, the what's that? Remember how we nearly got drive by that ferry that year? I was just paddling in London. Look, I was like, "Oh
1: my god!" <laughs> exactly. And the guy, you know, the guy put the, you know, he put the throttle down when he saw people because he wanted to make sure that uh, he made an example of people so you know I mean those are the challenges we face in those kind of locations uh, which is why we kind of uh, sort of reevaluating as we build the City Paddle Festival because the one thing was really cool being you know uh, right under the um, uh, right under the Freedom Tower there in New York is that the, the number of people coming through and exposed to the sport is just insane I mean that was the biggest takeaway for me on that first year was you know we had 30,000 people come through the site uh, and we had that big screen showing images of people surfing in wave pools, paddling in Patagonia, doing all the stuff. And people were just like, "I had no idea. This is the coolest thing I've ever seen." And that, for us, was the biggest win at that event because you just you're exposing people to something that they never even thought about. They might have heard now. Most people, you know, they know what stand up paddling is. They might have done it once on holiday, but they had no idea that one, it was so competitive, and you guys are you know professional athletes at a, a hugely high level. Um, but there's so many different components to it and there's so many different ways you can ride this one sport. It's, it's the cycling of the ocean. You know, you can be BMX, mountain bike, road bike, any format of it, but it's still one sport. You're on two wheels. And it's the same, same with standup.
0: Yeah. I had this exact same conversation with Daniel Hussle the other day. And we we're talking about how stand up really does relate to the general public and it does relate to um, like the cyclists and, and the running populations where right? it is the community fun runs that people all turn up to and, that's sort of where I see a lot of the future with the sport. Um, So when you're choosing the formats for the the world tour, you've got like the 10K distance race and the the sprint formats. How how do you choose those?
1: Um, We wanted to fall on something or we wanted to establish something that was um, really understandable for the general public. Um, You know, and I think that's, in running they've done a really good job of that with the 1k 5k you know marathon 10k they've got all the different formats that just these are the established criteria in paddling uh you know we we toyed with some longer races but they were hard to keep the excitement and entertainment around it, especially if you're at a venue where you're trying to engage people um so 10k was just like a a good size race and you know from all the majority of the athletes came back to me with the same feeling that it you know this is a good kind of rounded distance to keep it exciting, keep it competitive. Um, you know, and the best man will win. Uh, and the sprints was really about creating something really dynamic and fast. And you know, I I feel like stand up paddling is uh, it's a board sport, um, and I've always wanted to keep it interesting by keeping turns, keeping uh, obstacles, keeping things in the in the course that make it interesting. Otherwise, you're just like a swimmer in a swimming pool going up and down a lane. Um, but even in the swimming pool. You got to turn at the end of the pool, and that's part of the technique, and that's part of a skill set you got to have. And and so what we did with that was, you know, how do we create it? So it's a very technical race. So it's it's exciting to watch. Uh, it's explosive, and and I think with the sprints, uh, we showed that. You know, obviously in the surf, it was you've got an automatic obstacle that makes it really exciting. Um, yeah. But even when I think to, to London in 2018. We really engaged a lot of people on site with how exciting and explosive the racing was. People going off the start and their boards were just out of the water and they're riding off their fins because they're just hammering so hard. And because it's only 150 meters, you, you can afford to go pedal. So, you know, I think it was those things. It was how do we create two different disciplines that define two different athletes? And I think it's definitely done that. I mean, you look at yourself, you dominate in the 10Ks and Casper dominates in the sprints. And then it's who can kind of up their game in the other one enough to, like, get the overall. And I think that's an exciting thing. And, and the reason why we kept to an overall title is because I just, from an outsider, again, coming in, looking into the sport, it just has to be simple to understand. If you have 25 different titles, it just, everything gets diluted and there's 49-time world champion and this guy and this guy. And I just wanted to keep it really clear and simple. This is what it is. Isn't
0: that like, like a, isn't,
1: isn't the guys like a 50-time world champion? Yeah, he's uh, a very close friend of mine, actually, that we run the uh, event in Gran Canaria with. I think he has 43 world titles. He was the guy Uh, who was was, like, two years ago um, to give the awards out. Uh, No, that's another guy. He's got a lot of titles, too, but nothing like uh, this guy. Yeah, that guy's got a lot of titles, too, but um, Bjorn Dunkerbeck was, uh, without doubt, the most dominant person in windsurfing i mean he got um, an accolade from the king of spain for his contribution to sport and he's uh i mean they always talk of kelly slater as being one of the most dominant uh, athletic figures of all time but bjorn Dunkerbet was the same uh and what was more impressive it was like imagine that you were doing distance racing sprint racing and surfing and you literally won all three for 10 years straight yeah or 50 years straight. and yeah he, he did uh how many seasons he did he started at 50 he did 30 consecutive seasons on the world tour he, you know he started at 15 and he f- retired at 45 <laughs> so okay. <you> know, anyway. <laughs> but but for me the most impressive thing i think he was he had 13 overall world titles And i think that for me that's the number that is like the number that will go down in time 43 is definitely radical but people almost discount it because it's just almost a ludicrous number um, but whereas the overall title really it has weight, you know, and I feel like that t- stands the test of time. Yeah, 43 is a lot
0: to comprehend. Because then you think <laughs> for 43 years—that's pretty impressive. So he must have started when he was like 10, and he's won all the way through. But uh, yeah, it is—it's is quite difficult at the moment, especially in stand-up. It's kind of like boxing or something like that. There's so many different federations. There's, there's ISA, there's ICF, there's the APP World Tour. So you've got almost—you've got three different types of world titles at the moment how hard is that for you to position yourself in the sport i know you're assigned, aligned with the isa how is that relationship how is that relationship formed and how are you sort of working through this sort of i guess gray confusing period of um which which federation runs the sport essentially yeah i you
1: know i think it, it's something where you know the origins of stand-up paddling are that it's a surfing sport. And I think, you know, no matter how, which way you spin it, you know, it's kind of the origins of the sport of that. And that's what's been the, the, the boost of popularity is because it's a connection to surfing, but it's an accessible surfing. It's something you can do as a mass, particip- mass participation. You can do it um, for yoga. You can do all the different components to it, but the fact remains, it kind of come, stems from there. So that's our reason really for, for working with the ISA, not least because, um, you know they've been working in the sport for nearly as long as we have uh, and in fact even I think they started they kind of founded the the basis for it in 2008 um, so you know they've been in it a long time um, it's the Olympic um, proposition is a really interesting one uh, there's no doubt that stand-up paddling is perfectly suited to the Olympics more so that you know I would say potentially controversially than surfing could ever be I, you know I think stand-up paddling just the formats the the versatility of it really makes sense for the Olympics. Um, So, you know, and I think the ISA saw that and obviously it's why they jumped on it early. I think the ICF saw it later that, you know, this is a cool sport that's suddenly really popular uh, and it would be a good addition to what we're doing. So I, you know, I understand why they jumped into it. um, But the fact remains, it was kind of already going at that point. Um, You know, as far as the world titles are concerned, you know, I've always had my uh, opinion as far as how that can work, that should work. You know, in my opinion, the the Federation's job is to award uh, medals. You know, I think it, there's gold medalists, silver medalists, and bronze medalists in a team event uh, that is once a year, uh, and that that should be the games. It's sort of like the individual sports games that lead up to the Olympic Games. Uh, and that's always how I've seen a Federation. I think it creates confusion when there's, like, world titles and all this kind of stuff on the line because of, I feel – Again, it kind of dilutes the space. And then if you get another federation offering the same thing, it obviously dilutes the space further. Yeah. Um, you know, but at the end of the day, I think all that will kind of settle over the next few years. You know, uh, I know that there's the arbitration that's due to kind of be decided on in the next few months. Hopefully that will clear that story up. Um, we work very closely with the ISA. You know, I've always been, a, like I said, a, a, a supporter of the idea of make it more about the games than about a world championship because it's confusing. Uh, When we've got, you're recognizing us as the world championship, but yet you have a world championship. So it's kind of, or recognize us as a world championship tour that ultimately crowns world champions. Um, So I think it creates some confusion um, that would be really easily resolved if it was kind of done that way. But that's just my opinion. Um, I think, you know, at the end of the day, uh, if you look at surfing as an example, the ISA have always held the ISA games uh, and they run concurrently to... The WSL, but the WSL is the professional tour for the sport, and, and the world champions are undisputed. And, and that's how I feel is, is becoming the case in, in stand up battling, and that's how it will be for the years to come.
0: With surfing, I, I don't know, surfing ins and outs, but is so when the WSL crowns a world like tour title like uh, whoever ends up winning it, is that sanctioned by the ISA or is that just their world title?
1: It's just their world title, but they are—they're now they are kind of recognized. You know, the ISA recognizes the WSL. Um, I would say that they have a, a less close relationship than we do with the ISA. You know, I really see the value in working hand-in-hand hand, um, from a federation and a, and a professional tour perspective because I think it's only the best for the sport. I'm, I'm definitely somebody who wants to... I think collaboration is a lot better than, you know, s- sitting there wanting to fight, duke it out. You know, and, and I think... There was a little bit of that with the WSL and, and the ISA for, for several years because traditionally they were such separate organizations. Whereas from the early stage, we were kind of aligned and saying, look, how do we, the overall vision is to success and healthiness of the sport of stand-up paddling. How do we get there? Uh, and that's, that's really been the approach that we've adopted with the ISA.
0: Yeah, because I know as an athlete at the moment, it is very confusing. It's probably confusing for the people from the outside looking in as to what, like the major event is for the year. Because obviously you, for me, like as an athlete, in my personal opinion, you've got like a big race at the Carolina Cup. The PPG was a big event for a long time. Um, you've got the Euro Tour title, which is quite big. The ABP World Tour title. But then you add a world title and you add something with a world on. So you've got the AGP World Distance Race title this year, the Sprint Race world title and the overall world title. Um, and then you've got, obviously, the ICF came in last year. ICF world titles and then ISA world titles a few weeks later that sort of jumped up five weeks before and were like, yeah, we're running a world title. It, it definitely does get confusing for an athlete and probably for a spectator and the community of SUP. How, when, when is this, I, I'm not sure what your involvement is, is with this situation, but like when is this going to be solved? Because until probably that is solved and a true pathway is created for youngsters looking at our sport or even the general public, it's probably not going to progress forward until this matter is really sorted because you look at people in Europe, they're like, Oh, maybe I can join my my sprint guide club because they're going to have subs in it. Or then there's not really, or there might be a club that for surfing in WA that's associated with our stand up community. When is that going to be sort of solved and, and how do you see it playing out in the next few months or few years? I don't know. It's been going for a couple of years now, so it seems crazy. Surely they have a little time right now to sit in an office and work it
1: out. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think, uh, you know, from an ICF versus ISA debate, I think there's, there's an ongoing arbitration process um, and that's going to be cleared up in the next, I believe, two to three months is what I was told. Um, it always seems like it's another two months, but uh, that's, that's what I've heard from that perspective. You know, I think outside of that, um, you know, what, what we're attempting to do uh, and what we're building, is obviously have the best athletes of the world across all the events competing for world title because that ultimately doesn't matter who calls anything world this world that that ultimately decides what you know who the world champion is and you know the, in some respects the responsibility is also in the athlete, court, uh, athlete sport because it might seem in the short term that going to win this race because all the other guys are over there and i can claim i got this title might seem attractive and it's a quick win but does it help the sport no you're probably just spreading you know you're keeping that dilution alive you know it's 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 sort of uh it's all the athletes coming together and banding behind and really pushing something forward that's going to help you know the overall objective and at the end of the day it has to be an organization that can provide the infrastructure for that because athletes are there to be athletes and and compete and they shouldn't have to deal with the stresses and responsibilities of, of trying to coordinate things at an event level Uh, and it's, uh, you know, and that's, that's basically the situation. So, I mean, I think that, uh, there's going to be, there's the world tour that will Crown world titles. There's the, there's the federation that will decide the pathway ultimately to the Olympics and have their, you know, international games as I like to consider them, um, each year. Uh, and then that will be pretty clear. Those will be the two organizations. And then, you know, regionally there can be all kinds of different things going on. Uh, we're definitely looking to kind of, Um, grow our reach and and overall impact in terms of catering to every level of stand-up paddling uh, to having qualifier series so that you know a young 12 year old kid can start training towards um, you know racing at a regional level then a national level in the same way that I did when I was a kid windsurfing you know I did the youth nationals when I was under when I was 14 I did the under 18 youth nationals and that was the first step towards getting into the career that I had Um, and for stand-up paddling I want to see the same thing because I think it's super important. You can have a race anywhere with any kind of standards, but if you have a structured set of standards that is the same across all the events and there's uniformity, that's what's going to create excellence in the long run and create a real pathway.
0: Yeah. And I'd really like to see it for all athletes. And I think even you're talking about them like athletes are going here and going there, but unfortunately there isn't enough money for us to justify going to every single race and we don't really know which one it is because we're obviously getting pulled all sorts of different which ways like from a different sponsors who basically basically say "Well, we want you to go here or we want you to go there and sometimes we don't really have that say but if the sport can sort itself out on an international level and a federation level I think that will help and I love hearing your passion about No, my world title my world title is, is the right world title um, but who knows like what's going to happen and I hope it just clears itself up because I'd like to see it might not even happen in mine. Like, I start thinking sometimes it's not going to happen when I'm still racing. Like, it could be another 10 years before they sort it out. But it'd be great to see the next generation coming through, having that clearer pathway, having more regulations around um, board sizes, board widths, um, creating a little bit more, I guess, competition that allows more people to get involved in it and not feel like they have to get to the latest board every single year and they can actually still compete on it an older book it is the same width it is the same weight it is the same regulation i think that would be cool to see and obviously that would be branched out across all of the, the events like so even if you're running a community event in i don't know utah in the u.s or perth australia or in europe you've, you've got the same sort of like rules systems in place where it is a sport where we can all sort of train and race towards a particular event win or goal it's not just about I don't know. One event organizer wants to do this big downwind race, and then one event is doing a sprint race, and then one event we're doing this. But then the world title is is a, is going back and forth in sprint or starting off the beach and going back. Then one, another world titles are throwing me a straight straight flat. Like how how confusing is that? I think for the kids coming through and even like the general public. So it'd be great to to get that all sort of
1: ironed out in the next few years. Yeah, absolutely, and and certainly, I don't look at it as uh, my world title. Just, to, <laughs> just to be fair, no, sorry, I didn't, I didn't mean to say it that way, but you, you know what I mean? No, 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 I know what you mean. No, I think, I think that you know the reality is uh, that anybody who kind of takes a closer look at how professional sports work, there has to be a level of investment to create structure, to create stat, uh, standards and guidelines, and you know, that's what we really attempted uh, to do. You know, and we we've, we've certainly put more financial uh, input into the sport than any by such a long way than than anything else out there and we've built something that has media outreach to you know 120 countries worldwide that has athletes from all over the world participating and you know right now obviously you guys are the best in the best that do follow the tour you know i mean if you look at the top 10 on on the app world tour it's the best guys in the world um and I, i think that's undebatable at this point um but those standards that you mentioned, I think they're critical. And that's what we're really pouring focus now and on, you know, and as you say, we've got some time now to really kind of take a step back. while we don't have events ongoing. Um, we're working very hard at how that kind of structure regionally and nationally and, and internationally can work so that there is much more of a uniform uh approach to the sport and there's that proper pathway to a title so that the next Michael Booth can come up and uh, and you know, easily get his way to the world tour just through his talent, determination, and, and local support.
0: Yeah, and that, and that would be great to see. And I'd like to see that. I guess, especially at this time, we have more time on our hands. We have like not, we don't have the events to plan for. We don't have like the critical things going on that we have to plan right here, right now. Like most of us have got through that phase. We've gone through the crisis phase. Um, of this COVID-19 situation. So now we've got this time where we can't necessarily plan for the future, but we can go down to the roots of a lot of things and the foundations of even things that I do. And you've got to look at, okay, so how can we make this better for everybody? And I think it's up to those federations and the, the international who organizers like yourself to try and help push that and get that like steamroll like through so we can actually make some progress with our sport and, and keep it rolling forward because I think if you talk to a lot of people, a lot of people are confused in a way. I, I see a like great future for the sport and I think after this COVID-19 crisis, I think we have more and more participants because people are going to be looking at leisure activities as their go-to because they're like, I haven't done that. I didn't spend enough time on that. I want to do that more than I want to go to my job and do my nine-to-five every day. But we really need everybody to step up and really try and focus on building these foundations so we can move
1: forward. Absolutely. No, and I, I think that's what it is. And, You know, we're definitely, like I said, trying to really grow out that base foundations. Uh, You know, at a top pro level, we've created an athlete commission. It's something that we want to have athletes input in. I know they get pulled in every direction. They need to be here, there, and everywhere for sponsors. And at the end of the day, you know, there's only limited money in the sport and everybody's got to make a living. Uh, And we understand that more than anyone. Um, So, you know, I think it's it's finding the right, uh, you know, approach forward so that, you know, we can all grow this together. Uh, we can build a really flourishing world tour that kind of represents the pinnacle of the sport, um, but also provides a, an entry point that is unparalleled. And that's really what we're trying to do is, is have it all the way from that first time, wow, what's that sport to you guys at the top and everything in between. Um, so building out those middle parts of it is something that we're focusing a lot on uh, from grassroots level participation to, you know, when you look at the Paris race, I would say 70 to 80% of the people on the river, if not more, and not competitive whatsoever, they're just there for the job. You know, it's, it's a great fun thing. It's a community activity. And that's the way we look at it is that, you know, over 80% of the stand-up paddle market is non-competitive still. And that's not a bad thing. You know, I think it's a great thing because um, if you look at any sport, that's really the way. Um, but it's how do you engage those people uh, in a way that connects them with you guys, whether they race or not. Uh, and that's what we're really working on both through media, both through activations and events, uh, and then, you know, in the digital space on how we build the business moving forward. So, you know, I think creating that really healthy structure for the sport from bottom to top is, is, is what we're really focused on.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and that's really important. I think looking at our sport and looking at any of the top tier sports, you have to have a good community base like to, sort of, I always look at it as like a pyramid structure. You've got to have that big community at the bottom who just want to go get by their boards from their local fishing shop. And then you've got the people who want to get a little bit of a better board. And then you've got like, the people who want to paddle the elite boards. And then you've got the elites of the elites, and the guys who are racing in between. So you've got to have that top-down structure to be able to have any sort of success in a sport. And stand-up paddling does have that opportunity because, as you say, you can race on lakes, rivers, um, in the big ocean, obviously through the surf. There's so many... But there's pretty much nowhere you can't paddle with, with um, a stand-up
1: paddleboard. Absolutely, no, and that's where we see the huge potential. I think it's you know everything from a health uh, and fitness kind of activity for people who are just kind of cruising around just to do a core cool body workout or whatever it is, um, to guys who are you know hammering it out on a race course, to the guys who are surfing. Uh, and I think it's what keeps the sport so interesting, and it's what it's the value proposition as a whole that that we see as as a great opportunity for the future. I don't think, you know, I mean. I don't think we've scratched the surface of the growth potential of, of standup paddling. Uh, and I equate it back to when I was a kid, uh, my brother had a racing bike and I had a mountain bike. Um, and my brother was one of the only guys I know who got a racing bike. Whereas I know today I look around me and there's not like, if I went out on a mountain bike, I'm the unusual guy cause there's like 10 million racing bikes. You look outside, there's freaking hordes of people everywhere, just cycling everywhere. Uh, and I think, you know, people could might have said 30 years ago, road biking doesn't have anywhere to go. Whereas now, I'd say road biking is one of the biggest, you know, participatory like endurance sports there are. Um, and I think stand up paddling has this potential that I think, if we look in, like you know, the industry obviously fights its daily battles of of how we sell boards, you know, the cheap boards coming from China, all the different challenges that they face in terms of keeping market share and making it all work. Um, but I think it's going to be biding time because. It's, it's the evolution of the sport. It's new people coming into it. It's creating an open-ended structure that everybody can come in no matter what their interest is in the sport. They can come in and get engaged. And that's you know, what we're really working on is how do we increase the net rather than hold on to what we have. I saw that in windsurfing really clearly. And windsurfing has so many more barriers to entry than, than stand-up paddling. But, where, where you know, it was, they were so scared of losing their current market. They were just chasing after it, chasing after it, and, and changing to suit that current market rather than looking 10 years down the line to say, how do we get 10 million new participants into the sport? Because that's what's going to create the future. Uh, and that's, that's what we're looking at uh, really, really closely because we don't have, obviously, the, the concerns of the board sales to sell right now. We have the opportunity to grow a sport um, at that level.
0: Yeah, and I think it's great to hear that you want to expose the sport to more people and that sort of becomes successful for everybody because with more people, there becomes more uh, financial investment in the sport. There becomes it becomes better for the industry, it becomes better for the athletes, it becomes better for the event organisers. And I guess it becomes better for the people who actually do it because it is an awesome sport to be a part of. Whether you go from stand-up paddling in the surf, when you're actually doing the surfing or doing the racing side of things or actually leisurely paddling with you and your dog and your family in, in the sunset or whatever it is that you really like doing. So I think that sort of part of it is sort of comes down to what I was talking about before. Like once we get these federations to sort themselves out and they actually start working on the sport and actually start pushing it to new levels and exposing it to more people, I think it, this will happen really easily. It's just, we've got to stop fighting with each other and actually start working all together because Technically, we, I, I guess we all want the same thing.
1: Absolutely. and I, But I also don't think we drop it all on the Federation's lap to say, you know, you're the guys charged with developing the sport. Because honestly, I look at stand-up paddling as a leisure activity, quite frankly. It's a leisure activity that is also a, a professional sport as well. Um, and there'll be so many people that will come in at the leisure level, but then might end up diving into something really competitive so it would have nothing to do with that kind of federation this is how you get into the sport this is what's you know this is the structured process you need that structured process Um, but the bigger promotion of the sport has to come from this wide net that we do have the fact that stand-up paddling is this shiny object that's really cool and really easy to do Uh, they can jump on it on holiday they can do it and then there is this element to it that's so exciting and competitive and and is a real professional sport so You know, I think it's, we're definitely focused on that bigger picture. Um, That's what we're doing as an organization is how do we grow the overall market? How do we grow the sport, Um, both at a professional level, but also just getting more engagement and community involved so that we grow this opportunity for everybody? Because at the end of the day, if if we have a flourishing tour, the athletes are hyping because they got great events to attend all over the world. Um, if we build a nice qualifying series, there's a great pathway that young athletes can come through. There's potential grant funding from governments that say, "Look, this is a real sport. It's uh, sanctioned by the international federation. This is what's you know. These are all the things that make it work." Um, so you know, there's still some work to do, but I definitely think we're on the right path to to, to getting towards that goal. But it's obviously going to take take some time.
0: Yeah, I mean, like any sort of leisure activity sport, like golf or tennis or anything like that, there is an elite component of that. But I think if the elite component looks really nice and it looks structured, I think the community level stuff will come. Um, But moving, moving on from that topic, what, what does like 2020 look like for you guys in APP? Obviously you've got so many challenges with COVID-19. You've had to cancel a couple of events. Um, You're obviously still trying to hope, well we're hoping that we're able to still to go to Osaka, obviously for the racing, the Canary Islands and Paris. Um, obviously, you have a couple of surfing events around that towards the end of the year as well. Um, how, how challenging is this whole situation
1: for you? You know, I think the most in, in challenging thing is the unknown um, because no one knows what's going to pan out. No one's got a roadmap for what we're all going through right now. Um, you know, and even if things calm down in the next month or so, what does that look like for travel? Um, you know, at the end of the day, the biggest thing that everybody's shying away from is mass gatherings. So, you know, events and things like that suddenly really challenging propositions especially when you're looking at something like Osaka where you go into the middle of the city um, for you know a community event um, so you know I think our, our response right now is to, to continue on planning towards you know what we have in place um, the restructured version of, of, of the tour based on what we had to do which you know in retrospect was definitely the right thing I mean obviously the U.S. is it's having a horrible time right now so you know, that was really challenging. And and what we also have to look at for sponsors and host cities is they need to have some promotion time, you know, just from one day to the next saying, okay, we're going to go there next week. If you haven't had a chance to promote, you haven't had a chance to do any of that, no one's getting their money's worth as far as what they're getting out of the event. So, you know, it's it's a delicate balance and and we're monitoring really, really closely. You know, at the end of the month, we have another check-in with all our uh, stakeholders to discuss, you know, the latest development, see what's going on. And we're sort of meeting... If not weekly, bi-weekly, just just to make sure that uh, you know we're on the pulse with everything that's going on.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I, I hope it all sort of works out. But how is well, so? What is? Can you give us an idea of Tristan Boxford's day? So is are your, are your is your day mainly focused on the ABP or do you have other projects you work on as well, or is the ABP
1: your full time gig? APP is my full time gig. If you saw the amount of uh, crap I got to deal with every day? <laughs> yeah, no, no. Um, I just, I didn't, I don't really know,
0: obviously, and probably most people don't know. Like, obviously, there's a, like, you've got a, quite a sizable team. I know I was speaking to Holly on, on the social media all the other day. You've got Danny and Christian who's doing some of the media. You've got, obviously, a whole bunch of different people pushing the, the, the APP the whole time. But yeah, I am just interested. How, how will your day sort of plan out and how do you manage? all the different sectors of the business, because obviously you've got your events, but then you've got your investments, you've got, um, like, you're managing people, you're trying to make sure certain tasks get done. Like, how do you control all of that?
1: Well, I mean, you know, we've got a core team, basically, it's it's myself, uh, and then my operations director, Danny, uh, and then Christian is the media director. You know, at the moment, that is the core team that is a day-to-day on on the business. Um, We've just had our social media manager join, Holly, Um, she's on, you know, she's just finishing off, uh, university. She's really bright, really uh, excited, really passionate. Um, so we're, we're, we're excited to see how that develops. Um, but yeah, our core team is that, um, you know, one blessing from this situation is like I said, I always refer to it like a hamster wheel because I've been on it for like (laughs) a decade now of just going from event to event to event to year to year. and, And it's the first time I've actually been able to take a step back. Uh, and, and really look a lot more strategically at the business and and how we can build it going forward. Um, you know, we're in the process of, of developing some new partnerships, um, that will really enhance what we're able to do over the next few years. Um, and it's allowed me to really focus on that and the strategy around it. Um, you know, my days, a mix of dealing with current business, uh, you know, the tour this year, um, media output, um, you know, everything that we're doing on a day to day basis, then there's the 2021, 21, 22, 23 plans, dealing with host cities. Obviously a lot of the sponsorship and host city stuff's a little bit on hold now. We've got some you know, bigger picture conversations with, with some of those people, but it's not a day to day, something that we focus on right now because everybody just doesn't know what's happening. Um, and then there's the kind of overall uh, growth picture for the business, like I said, much more strategic planning. Uh, how do we evolve the business? Uh, how to, how does the business look in three to five years? Um, and and how yeah what 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 does it look like? And so that's you know much of my time over the last two months has yeah. been really, really focused on that so that we can grow it for a really healthy future.
0: Yeah so you've been obviously in it for the long haul. Like I, I know I say it to you sometimes, just like I don't know how you've done it for so long, you walk around and you pretty stressed, but you, you keep making it happen. Your your passion's obviously there for the sport and your vision for the sport um like when you talk about two three four four years down the track um do you see yourself still doing um the app world tour and keeping on pushing it because i guess some people would have written you off like five years ago and said oh he's not going to keep going but every year you come back and you got a new tour and you're really trying to push that sport to the next level and you have this great vision for the sport so it's good to see it. and yeah just tell us a little bit about your vision for the future
1: yeah, like I said, I mean, I think uh, the last 10 years have been a real grind um, because we've been having to do all the things I just mentioned on the go. Um, so, you know, while I'm at an event uh, and in the past, even like, you know, doing the start and doing the media interviews, um, then all these different kind of things, I'm I'm thinking about the next event, the next year, the next media product, the next everything. And, and quite frankly, that's exhausting. Um, and so what we're trying to do now uh, <laughs> with the uh, – with the, you know, kind of the, the business development as a whole is to, to have it much more where I, I am much more in a CEO capacity where I'm not operational in, in any aspect of the business. You know, Danny, uh, over the last two years, has, has really come into his own in terms of being able to produce every aspect of the event. Um, Anthony Vela uh, is going to be coming on uh, once things resume here as director of sports or so managing all the sport aspects or so really owning that side of it. You know, we've been kind of working side by side the last couple of years, but Anthony's just, I mean, you can attest to that too, but he's just such a wealth of knowledge. Uh, he's got a great presence uh, and he's really passionate. Um, he's, so he's a perfect uh, you know, addition to the team for us there. Um, and then Christian, of course, has been such a, a warrior the last decade, like, you know, powering through in the most um, impossible situations to come through with a product and you know, it's always easy to sit on the sa- sidelines and and throw fricking uh, rotten fruit at somebody for not doing this or not doing that. But when you see the challenges that that man has faced to produce the kind of product he's he's produced and and deliver shows to CBS to Fox to all these networks around the world, it's just mind blowing. So, you know, my hat is always off for 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 everything he's achieved. And um, you know, my my goal moving forward is to have him have more of that responsibility. But again, like me, be more oversight. So he's not doing every single aspect of of that part of the business and have a much more efficient business model that allows me to develop and think about three to five years time rather than right now. So in response to your question, yes, I see myself very much uh, still doing this in three to five years time. And that's the vision for the company. Um, But I don't see myself uh, producing events personally. Um, I see it more an oversight role. I'll be there. I'll be watching. I'll be making sure everything's exactly as it should be in professional which is really what my role should be rather than getting in there to fix a, a bolt on a on a tent or jumping into the water to to move a buoy or you know whatever all all the things that i've been doing over the last 10 years so
0: yeah no it's cool to hear your vision for the future now it's cool to hear that you're actually um fully committed to the sport and you're going to be around for a long time because as i always like i always say like when it was a building in a day like you've actually got a and like even race built in a day like you, i've testament to my race of like 20 years of training and racing and that's something you just got to put years and years of hard work into and you've got so many challenges and so many naysayers out there obviously who don't want you to do well like you know for racing like you've always got 10% of people who generally don't like what you do or don't want you to win or whatever it might be and I guess my question is to you like how do you deal with that criticism like do you use it to motivate you or do you use it you just to completely ignore it? Because I'm one of those guys who's like a weirdo and like gets psyched by it because I'm like, oh, someone doesn't think I can do something I get proven wrong. So that's something that I get excited over. But is that something, how, how's your approach with that?
1: You know, I'm, I'm a pretty even keeled person. I try to, uh, you know, I, I can't remember the English expression. My mom always has a go at me because I always get them wrong, but it's the weed from the trees, you know, like I, I, I really appreciate and, and take in positive criticism. Um, and I tend to ignore stupid banter because it doesn't get anywhere and it's unproductive and, and you end up going down a rabbit hole of, of stupidity. And, you know, I could start uh, a million op-eds tomorrow stating my case and this is the way this is and I can't believe this happened. But what does it achieve? It's, it's just, it's, you know, it's kind of like Facebook right now where everybody's a Facebook philosopher and everybody's got their opinion of what this is and what that is and, and quite frankly, the proof is in the pudding. Uh, you work hard at what you do, you produce and deliver what you did. I think 2019 was a great year for the APP. Uh, we delivered, you know, a really great series of events. We had some phenomenal champions, um, some really foughtly, you know, tightly fought battles. Um, and it was an exciting year. The media output was great. The, the impact was better than ever. You know, some of the events over half a million views for, for the event. Um, we had some great results and it's building towards an even better future and and I always, you know, it can get you down when you hear uh, stupid comments and, and just straight lies. And, and, you know, I've heard everything, everything you could possibly imagine, every kind of slander personally and professionally that you could ever imagine. And you just got to let it, you know, roll off you because you know, it would be lowering to that level to, to even respond to it. So it's better just to keep your head up and focus on, on what you got to do.
0: Yeah, and I always find it interesting, like even reading the comments of like you're running like a live stream for a sub event and like we're racing, and either people get upset that um, the audio cuts out or, or the signal cuts out, but then if you run the race an hour later, they're upset they didn't get to watch it live. And like you can't really keep people happy, and it's just you're always going to have that negativity. And I personally like to see people actually be more positive with the sport because we do get to watch live. SUP races like that are professionally cast on Facebook and on social media and like we get to watch from our living rooms like I know my parents or uh, my friends and family or my supporters actually genuinely like watching that and I just get the news sometimes when I see that and like, all those negative comments come through and I'm just like why aren't we positive why don't we just go hey like look we get to watch SUP live on TV, on, our, on our little screen in bed you know like how good's that instead we're like really upset that it's not perfect quality or it's not 1080p or 4k or 8k or whatever it is these days. Yeah. It just, it just baffles me sometimes, but um, I think that you're always going to have that criticism. And I just think people could probably get a little bit more with the positive criticism than the, the straight out, flat out negative
1: criticism. Well, you know, I mean, I think first of all, it's in every sport. I mean, I look, I, I feel bad for actually the World surf league. who just pumped like millions into the sport and just, they produce a, an ESPN quality product. And yet you still just get the haters and it just, it blows my mind. I was just like, man, you guys got nothing else to do. You obviously like it because you're on there. You don't like it, go away. Yeah. You know, know, honestly, like, just like, don't watch it. Um, But, you know, that's the same in every sport. Um, You know, from our sport perspective, you know, the one criticism I have for for ourselves is that we strive to deliver something really polished and professional. Um, But we're faced with the economic challenges of, of what it takes to deliver that. Um, you know, and, and live streaming a a uh, long distance race, despite all the tests, um, especially on those rivers in the cities, is an incredibly challenging operation. Yes, it would be easier to just take an iPhone out and and go the old fat, not the old fashioned way. It's like the new fashion way, but like you know, we could <laughs> we could do that on social. Uh, I mean, media.
0: streaming on the iPhones, old fashioned now. <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: I, but I mean, myself
0: twenty years ago. Yeah,
1: no, but you know what I mean. Like, I, I think it's like. We could do that, um, but, I, you know, the way I look at it is that as a professional sports league, I would almost rather have somebody else go in there and just do the iPhone thing. So, you know, because at the end of the day, we can't go to a sponsor and say, yeah, yeah. You know, we can't go to Chase or someone and say, yeah, look at our live stream, brought to you on our iPhone. You know, just, you know, it's a professional sports league. We just, that's just not going to happen. Uh, and we have a full team of professional camera guys what we've tried to do because there's such a hunger for it to watch the race live. We've tried to produce, you know, bring in all that production quality that we have and deliver it live. Unfortunately you get on a river where there's, you know, stuff that I've never thought about, but like the metal on the bridges throws off the signals between the wireless, between the different cameras. There's just so many like pitfalls that you're almost setting yourselves up for disaster. So, you know, as we move forward, we are evaluating every uh, way we produce these live broadcasts. sprints are really much easier. Um, because, you know, you're just in one location, it's fixed, it's much easier to deliver a good broadcast. Um, with the long distances, we're evaluating how we do that, because, you know, on the one hand, uh, I want to satisfy that core audience that that wants to leave the, the 5 million comments <laughs> online and, and and wants to watch it and is such a passionate person. this sport. we desperately need those people to be engaged and, and, and love our product. Um, but at the same time, I want to make sure that we deliver a professional product. So it's kind of, you know, it's it's bridging that, and sometimes we've fallen short because we've tried to to do both, and it's tough, um, and it's almost impossible unless you have, you know, a three hundred thousand dollar media budget to produce a race on the River Thames, uh, which obviously we don't have. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, and, and like I think that criticism is good is a good thing because people care. Like, at the end of the day, like that's why the people are getting upset because they care because they love it so much, and that's I think that's pretty cool to have that we're stand up I'm a saddle paddle racer essentially and you're running an event in Osaka or in Paris or New York and you've got people all around the world upset because they didn't get their live stream you know like that's in a way that's awesome because
1: people actually care that you're doing the event and they want that event they they love it 1000%. No and and that's exactly it we want to we love that passion and we want to feed that passion and make sure we deliver on it you know, and, and, you know, I think that the naysayers will always be there. And, you know, you can always look at a glass half empty rather than a glass half full. Um, and, you know, you can look at something and look at all the negative things or focus on this or even kind of have that uh, creative uh, false media thing of, of delivering a story that just isn't the case. But, you know, that's always going to be this case. You know, it happens in politics, it happens in sport. It's not a stand-up paddle-focused thing. Um, you know, our goal is to deliver something really polished and professional. Um, and 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 create a great platform for you guys. I mean, that's that's really you know that's the vision of the app.
0: Yeah, no, and that's and that's and I and I hope we keep to be able to producing this for years to come. And I'll try I'll race it for as long as I can, sort of make it sustainable for myself, and maybe I move into a different role in the sport going forward. But. Um, yeah, it's, it's just really cool to hear your passion and, and sort of just seeing that you really want to make this happen and you want to make it happen not only for the sport but for the athletes and for the community out there because stand-up as a, as a whole is, is such a fantastic sport. We've got such a good community around it and there's just so many cool things we can do with the sport and, and I think the elite level and the, and the showcasing that you're trying to do on the level of like the CNNs or the ESPNs and the Fox Sports and all that sort of stuff, we It'll be really cool to see our, our sport up
1: there with those big international sports one day. Yeah, I have no doubt it will be there. You know, I think it's, it's got all the right um, ingredients to, to, to really make it there. And, and our, our, we're you know, singly focused on ensuring that we create a positive future for the sport and, and something that embraces everyone too. You know, I think we could have got involved in any kind of sport, but stand-up paddling really resonated with me because I've always enjoyed multiple, I enjoy everything in the ocean. I literally just love every aspect of, of doing sport in the ocean. And, and stand up paddling was this first sport that kind of brought all those elements together into one sport. And it, it really has so much diversity and so many applications that it was just such a cool thing. And it was so accessible to everyone. Um, and I think that's something that really captured my imagination of like, imagine what this could be. Uh, you know and as we built this we we're starting to see what it can be but I don't think we have even scratched the surface I think there's you know a lot more to come and, and a lot of the stuff we're putting in place now I hope will lay the foundations for you know the development of that growth.
0: Yeah well I hope in uh, 10 years time we're having the same conversation and you're up in your big office and you're sort of directing different people around the place and you've got that big professional organization and we're, and we're sort of up there with one of those biggest sports. so that'd be awesome to see and you're probably the only like figuring our sport, actually pushing for that elite, eliteness of the sport and actually bringing obviously everybody together to create that product. And uh, I'm really, I'm really thankful on behalf of all the athletes and the people out there who actually, you're actually out there pushing our sport to that next level.
1: Well, thank you, Michael. That means a lot, man. Um, And uh, now we're excited. You know, I still get really excited thinking about uh, all the stuff that is to come. And, and I get excited even looking back when you start looking back at some of the races and that's some of the stuff we've had the opportunity to do with the media team this last uh, month or so is starting to look at the archive uh, the archive material. And, and it's insane. We've, we've, we've probably only shown about 25 or 30% of the stuff we have. Um, and there's so many stories. There's so many memories. There's so many cool things that have happened. Uh, and it really makes us even more excited about what's to come. So no, I think it's, it's good times.
0: And, you talk, and you're talking about, obviously, all that content you've got, and you've got. You're obviously creating a lot of content at the moment. I like know you've got this Immerse TV show. You work with a few of the athletes that put things out on social media. Um, what is the idea behind the Immerse TV show? And, and
1: is that just sort of trying to gain more exposure again? Yeah, it's funny, actually. It was something that we'd been wanting to do for a while, but we hadn't really had time to put in motion. Um, you know, And it was just kind of bringing everything you know, bringing the latest from from the APPS perspective on the sport, bringing the athletes to the to the fore, and and stories that are relevant to to all things APP, um, and then obviously this this uh, situation hit with COVID nineteen, and and it made it even more relevant because people are hungry for content. Athletes need some kind of ex, you know platform for exposure, and we're like, okay, this is the right time. Let's just you know fast track it and and get it out there. The first two episodes, we're still kind of ironing out some of the the things that we want to do with it, but. The concept is is basically there that it, it gives spotlight on athletes uh check in with correspondents across the globe um you know our global reach uh and representation is huge so it's a great opportunity for us to be able to do that and dig into some of that archive content um do meaningful look backs speak to the legacy of some of our world world champions you know i mean looking at Connor baxter and his rise i've got content of connor since he was a little sprog you know and it's 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 kind of cool to it's kind of cool to look back on all that stuff and be able to to tell a story from the start until now of the sport, and that's something that because we were we were in it so early, we we've had the opportunity to do.
0: Yeah, and that's no different really to what I'm trying to do with these boothcasters is trying to get people's stories out there because there are so many great stories in paddle sports in general that nobody ever hears about. Like I hear about because I drink beers and. I'm sitting around with people till like the twelfth hour, and I'm just like really interested about what they're doing and why they did it and how they got to where they are. So now it's, I've got the opportunity to sit in my my room a lot, and I'm not going to be traveling much this year or at all. So I've got this a lot of passion projects that I've had on the on the back burner for a long time. So I've taken this opportunity as as the same way you've taken the opportunity with that Immerse, um TV show, and just being able to to talk to people and I, I get to learn so much from doing these episodes and talking to people. And it's just so easy these days being able to link up with people all around the world. Like you're in Portugal at the moment and we're just having a conversation like we'd be sitting in a lounge room. So it's its just a really cool time to to be alive in a way. Obviously it's not, not a good time because we've got all these, all these issues going on in the world. But at the same time, I just spoke about before, it's its sort of a calming of what's happening around them. been happening for a long time. We've had that sort of like 10 year period since the last recession where we've just like really ramped it up, ramped it up, ramped it up. We kept ramping it up and now it's just like, okay, everybody's just calm down. Let's just have a bit of a rest and we, and we get that rest period. And we get that forced rest so nobody else can do it, anything exciting at the same time. So it is a really cool period to to reevaluate and, and lay those foundations like you're talking about.
1: Absolutely. And I think it, it's, um, it's also, uh, you know, I think the world needed a, a breather. You know, I mean, I look at just even the emissions that have, Light like being reduced, it was like something like 52 million tons less CO2 uh, emitted in, in Portugal alone uh, since in the last month, uh, which is just a dramatic amount. And the impact that that has on our environment is insane. And I don't think anything would have been able to achieve that had something like this not happened. So, you know, not that I'm saying it's a good thing, but I'm saying if, you, if, if we're facing something as challenging as this, to be able to look on the bright side and say, wow, this is going to really make people rethink you know, some of the things we do, some of the ways we do things, uh, the excessive amount of, of jet travel across the world of, of needing to be everywhere all the time. Like I spent half my time on the plane and, you know, it makes me think like, do I, you know, we're, we're sitting here chatting now, how many meetings can you actually do like this instead of being there in person? You know, little things that you can do to make your part of the difference that if, you know, 5 million people did the same thing, what impact would that have? Um, you know, everybody talks about, just the economic recession and all these different kinds of things. But at the same time, you know, everybody's been starting to get more and more on this environment train. How do we, how do we do our part to make things different? This is a great opportunity to reset and say, how do we come out of the gates of this uh, in a really positive way? And and that's what I hope the world doesn't figure out because we'll never completely figure it out, but at least start the process towards thinking in that way. Yeah, and it's
0: been incredible. You're seeing all those images come out of, like, nobody going through Venice, and it's just, like, clean water, and there's fish, and you can't see anything, and then you, like, see the, the photos of LA, like, gradually as the lockdown happened, there's, sort of, like, clear blue skies, and it never has that, and never has that layer of smog, and, yeah, it is an interesting, um, I guess, like, topic to talk about with the environment, and obviously there's a lot of issues around, like, like I think there's a, a global agreement for 2050 to have all the emissions reduced to a certain value, and You've got this big event that's just sort of stopped and given like the environment a big breather. It's it's quite an incredible thing. And as you spoke about it before, it's all about looking at things glass half full and we're able to do that if if we allow ourselves to. Right. Yeah. yeah, so. I
1: think, yeah. no, I think it, you know, I I uh, I look at it as a really calm time. I mean it's a stressful time, obviously, because it's also it's tough for you know for business to to go through these kind of things because everything stopped. There's no means of creating revenue. You're, you're developing and strategizing to the future, but the future is unknown because you don't know what's going to happen. So there's all those concerns and stresses. But at the same time, <clears throat> you know, a lot of families are getting to spend time together. Um, you know, the world looks a lot more beautiful place. I look outside here, and it's a really natural, beautiful place anyway. And it's really exposed, and, and weather passes through here. So not it's not like LA where it just kind of sit the, the fog sits in but the clarity that we've been seeing, I don't think I've ever seen that level of clarity. Like you can see the westernmost point of Europe, like it's like two feet away, <laughs> um, you know, and it's those kind of things. If you, if you take a moment to like reflect on that, it's really cool. And I, again, I just hope that it inspires, you know, people to not be naysayers about the, the challenges that we're f- facing. You know, the U S being the prime problem at the moment with denial that, you know, these things are really happening and that these problems are really problems, you know, and I hope people are, able to see them because of the differences we're seeing in the world while this is going on, think like, man, we are having this impact. How can we make a difference? And it's not just, uh, single use plastics. It's not just, uh, you know, CO2 gases. It's not just these things. It's all of it. You know, how can we all kind of be a bit more strategic with our lives, with our businesses, with everything that we do in life? You know, we get so used to all the benefits of modern society, but we've got to look at the, the downside of that and how can we counteract that?
0: Yeah, it's, I think really it's going to be a very different world that we live in post-COVID-19 regardless of what we're able to do and not we're able to do. I think the restrictions that we have in place will be in place until we have a, a vaccine, maybe not as strict, maybe not full lockdowns, but I, I, like in WA, we can still move around. We've only, we don't have that many cases. I think we've only got something like 400 or 500 cases, but a lot of them have been from international travels coming home and cruise ships, and there hasn't been a lot of um, community transmission so they've been able to be a little more lenient over here we can we go paddling in twos we can still go out in twos like and we're just spending more time at home and, and doing different things very very differently but yeah what the world would look like when we are going to be able to travel again and we are can we can do business as normal I think it's going to look very different because a lot of businesses have had to take a lot of things online like really quickly and it was amazing to see how like agile people can be because obviously when you're in the business environment, you're like, no, nah, it's just like, we're going to have care. It has to happen this way. We have to do it this way. And then all of a sudden, you can't do it that way anymore. And everyone like within two weeks, is just like, Oh no, we can do it this way now. It's all good. No worries. And you're like, Whoa, hang on. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I've just been, I've been able to see that. And I just, and even with what we do, like as, like as in the sport of stand up paddling or the sport of ocean sports and for myself i know with marketing like it's it's a lot it's a very different landscape because normally i'm marketing stand up having brands or different um brands that sort of around the industry and then you sort of go okay well how am i going to be able to do this without going to races and then obviously your income gets slaughtered because you can't go and uh, potentially do clinics or do um like win prize money which is like where a lot of our income does come from so but then you realize you, you like it, it is great to have all that but it's also great to just be at home and be with your family and be able to relax and sort of find new projects. And you realize everything's still going to be all right.
1: Exactly. Exactly.
0: And, um, so ending up now, is there anything you wanted to add like going forward? Like if people wanted to check out the ABP world tour, if they want to check out most TV, like, is there any links you wanted to share?
1: Yeah, I think that you're going to see a lot of changes on, uh, appworldtour.com you know a lot of well maybe subtle changes but a lot more content available a lot more um you know old live broadcast replays show replays all those kind of stuff are so worth checking out and then of course mrs tv which is the first and third wednesday of every month they get released um you know and apart from that i think um just stay tuned there's a lot of exciting stuff to come from the app um there's a lot of cool things in the works that i think are going to have profound uh, benefit over the next few years and and create some really cool opportunity for not only the pro athletes, um, but everybody to kind of get more engaged with the sport and more connected to the sport. Um, Cause I do believe it's a great sport. It, it's a great, uh, I feel like it's a great flagship sport for, for ocean sports in, and water sports in general um, because of, of the nature of the sport and the, the all access appeal. And I, I really love the idea that it's that uh, the flag in the sand that everybody can see and, and, and everything else emanates from there. So, you know, I think that's, that's, that's what I see coming in the next few years and I'm excited to see it happen.
0: Yeah, well, thanks, mate. Thanks for your time. Um, just thank, out there to everybody who has been watching this broadcast of BoothCast, really appreciate your support. Um, it's been an amazing process to actually hear all these amazing stories and support and hearing the mindset and hearing about how people are pushing through these different challenges that we have at the moment. If you want to check out more of these episodes, please go to your favourite uh, podcast channel, Spotify or iTunes, the main ones that people are listening on, but there's about seven other ones that you can go to. And if you want to watch any of these videos, um, there's about 25, 30 uh, boothcasts out there at the moment. So if you go to Michael Booth on my Facebook page in the video section, there's boothcasts and there's all the videos there. So I really appreciate the support that I've had so far and I just keep bringing them to you because I'm really enjoying hearing these stories. So Tristan, um, I really appreciate your time on today and all the best with all this stuff that's going on.
1: Real pleasure, mate. I look forward to seeing you soon. Cheers, mate.